God is good. And all the time. Uh, Even when it's raining outside, God is good, really? Really? All right, I'm just making sure. It's good to be in here with y'all when it's raining outside. Nice and warm and, and cozy. I give you permission for a little nap if you want while I'm talking. Just, although we will contact you during the week and have you pledged to the stained glass windows that we'll be putting in pretty soon. Uh, I'm just kidding, sort of. Um, anyways, uh, rain. Love the rain here that we have, and hopefully we'll get some snow. Um, I'm hoping we get some snow here. Uh, you know, didn't get much in San Diego, so we try to get as much as we can while we're here. But uh, always like the storm, per se. Um, I find it interesting, if you've been watching the news at all for the last month or so, you, uh, you've probably heard of a term called linsanity. Um, if you haven't, then uh, I will let you in on it a little bit. But for the last month or so, uh, New York City has been in a little bit of a frenzy because of the New York Knicks and a particular player named Jeremy Lin. And so they've given it the name Lin Sanity because he's brought insanity to the game of basketball and to New York and what he's done to turn that team around with, uh, with his level of play and what he's brought to the team um, at this time. And I just, I just want to share with you a little bit because, believe it or not, this is going to tie into the sermon, I think. Um, but uh, here's a guy who, growing up, you know, he went to Harvard, majored in economics, graduated, played basketball there, and, and his dream, you know, to play in the NBA. And he finds himself living on somebody's couch. Let me just share with you from one periodical. It says, one of the most surreal, surreal weeks in NBA history started with an eviction. It was February 3, an overcast Friday in New York City, and Joshua Lynn, an NYU dental student, had sadly informed his little brother, Jeremy, that he needed to find another place to crash for the night. Jeremy, an undrafted reserve with the Knicks, had been signed shortly before the new year for the last several days since being recalled from the organization's developmental league, the team in Erie, Pennsylvania. The 23-year-old point guard had been crashing on the brown couch in Josh's one-bedroom on the Lower East Side. For plenty of Harvard economics majors, living on a sofa would have already proved demoralizing. For one who had already lost two jobs in a 15-day span, this winter... The Golden State Warriors waved him on December 9, and the Rockets did the same late on Christmas Eve. It was significantly worse. Can you imagine being let go twice in 15 days, and one of those late on Christmas Eve night? Not good. But now came the weekend, and Josh, Jeremy's brother, and his wife, Patricia, had friends coming over. So my couch, Jeremy recalls, was occupied for the night. Clinging to his league minimum contract, which was not yet guaranteed, he found Harbor on a sofa in another living room, this one belonging to Nick's teammate Landry Fields. No one imagined that by the next evening, when an exhausted Jeremy returned from a win over the Nets to resume his tenancy on Josh's furniture, his world would be upside down. Jeremy was able to play in a game, and and he started the series of wins for the Nets. And nobody would have ever predicted, nobody would have ever 
thought that that would have happened, but they won game after game after game, and it's been quite a journey. I've been following him a little bit on Twitter, if you will, uh, to see where he's at and what's going on in his life, and they've gone through a losing streak. They've won a few, but it's been interesting, and and Lynn says this. Jeremy Lynn said this. He admits being shaken by those decisions which left the talented point guard angry and with strange new feelings of doubt and anxiety about his career. Yet he kept silent while stewing that these teams would toss him aside. NBA players, when you're living your dream, don't belong on couches at somebody else's house. When you're living your dream, quote-unquote, you don't belong on a couch when you're living in a game that people make hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars playing the game, and a a game in which image is everything. And Jeremy finds himself on a couch. Not just his brother's couch, but he gets kicked out of his brother's couch to go live on a teammate's couch. NBA stars aren't supposed to be living on couches. But Jeremy is a very committed Christian, and it's been fun to watch him on Twitter I took a little screenshot of his Twitter page. You probably can't read that because it's hard for me to read from where I'm standing. But in it, his icon, his his picture for his his Twitter page is a picture that I think I showed you maybe a couple months ago that my sister sent me of Jesus sitting on the bench with with a young man and he's saying, no, I don't mean Twitter, I mean literally, follow me, you know, literally. And his subline is to know him is to want to know him more. And then his location, which is where he resides, it says Landry's Couch. (laughs) But following him here, and he has over 600,000 followers, his tweet on March 11 was Romans 12.12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. A Christian living the life, the MBA, a follower of Jesus, but he still gets tossed from two teams in 15 days, one on Christmas Eve. Why, God? Why is this happening to me? Well, life is good when it's going well, amen? When it's all going good, when you have that pep in your step, when the sun always seems to be shining and the warmth is on your skin and the birds are chirping, the sky is blue, it's easy to follow Jesus because God just is always good, right? I thought of the song as I was writing this message this week. I just couldn't stop singing that Disney song. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day, you know, my oh my, what a wonderful day. Plenty of sunshine coming my way. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day, right? Isn't that what the Christian life is supposed to be about? Jesus came so we could have a zippity-doo-dah day. Plenty of sunshine coming my way. But the person who wrote the psalm that I want to look at today in Psalm 57 seemed to have everything going for him. Seemed like God had chosen this man to do something great for the kingdom of God here on earth, but he finds himself in a cave. He finds himself in a calamity. He finds himself experiencing a severe storm of life. God, what are you up to when the sun doesn't seem to be shining and when the clouds are rolling in and it's dark 
and it's raining, and it doesn't feel like a wonderful day coming my way. Would God actually lead me into a calamity, through a calamity? Questions we often wrestle with. But here is David in a cave. And kings don't belong in caves. But the psalmist is singing again. He's worshiping God in this cave. But when you look at the life of David, you say, why on earth would David end up in a cave? I mean, look at his life. At a young age, anointed to be the next king of God's people. When Samuel came along looking to anoint the next king and Saul was still reigning, he came and and there was Jesse with his sons. And Jesse never even thought to put David in the lineup. That's not even an option. He's just a, a young shepherd boy. And so Jesse brings out his sons and Samuel's like, nope, not that one, not that one, not that one, not... Jesse, do you have any more sons? Well, I've got one, but bring him out. And here comes this young boy, smelling like a shepherd. And Samuel says, God says, that's the one. So Samuel anoints David king. And David, if you remember, went before Goliath when all the other soldiers were afraid to fight Goliath. And he comes before Saul and he says, I can take on this this uncircumcised Philistine. Who is he in the eyes of God? And Saul says, all right, but let me equip you for this. And he puts all of his gear on him. And I always, ever since I was a kid, tried to picture David, you know, in all of this, this armor or whatever, just swimming in it. You know, it's like falling. He can't even walk in it. And so he tosses it all aside and he goes out there with his sling and a few stones. And he slays Goliath. God must be on his side. All these things seem so right. And Saul, when he needs help, It's David who provides the music to soothe Saul's soul. But as Saul begins to learn that God is up to something in David's life, he becomes jealous. He becomes envious. He becomes angry. And now he makes it his mission in life, not just to catch David, but to kill David. And so David runs from Saul. And David, the one that God has chosen to be his king, the one that God has been with to slay the giant, the one that everything seems to have been going right for, finds himself in a cave running from Saul. And here he is in Psalm 57, crying out to God, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. For in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends his love and his faithfulness. Do you hear his cry? Have you ever been there? I have. Crying out to God. The storm of life has come into your life and you are there saying, God, have mercy. Have mercy on me. He's being very emphatic. He's crying out from his heart. He's emphasizing in verse one, he doesn't say, have mercy on me, O God, 
For in you, O my soul, takes refuge. He says, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. Have you ever been in that point in your life when you find yourself on your knees in tears and you're just crying out for God to be merciful? If you haven't, you probably will at some point. Because even though you're the king of Israel, even though you're a child of the king, you will find yourselves in the caves of calamity and in the storms of life. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. For it is only in you that my soul takes refuge. I take refuge in the shadow of your wings until this disaster has passed. I cry out to the God most high, to the God who fulfills his purpose for me. Send from heaven, save me. God, send your love and your faithfulness. Your covenant love, your loyal love. Send it, God. Send it. Now David's cave of calamity, his storm of life, was centered around a specific thing. For some of us, it could be physical health. It could be emotional health. It could be financial health. It could be you fill in the blank. But David's calamity was specifically dealing with one thing. He says in verse 4, I am in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp like swords. He's not talking about lions and beasts, is he? He's talking about people who are speaking about him in a certain way, who are calling him certain things. He describes them whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. You ever felt that bite? You ever felt the sharpness of a tongue? Or maybe we should ask ourselves too, have we ever brought out the teeth? In talking to somebody, sharpened up the tongue when we've talked with somebody. When I was younger, I used to do a lot more crazy things. I won't divulge all of those to you. I don't want to inspire our young people. But when I was uh, working with some teenagers, I was uh, teaching a lesson on the tongue. And what the Bible says about the tongue and, and what the tongue can do. And so I decided to uh, go down to the meat market and buy myself a tongue. And I went down and I said, uh, I want the biggest tongue you have. So they brought out a few on display. Cow's tongue. It's quite a delicacy, I understand. And so I picked out my tongue, put it in a bag. And brought it to Sabbath school the next week. I, uh, I had it in the bag. I asked for a few volunteers. I had about three people come up. And I said, now, we're going to ask them to put their hand in the bag. And to guess what's in the bag. And uh, so, of course, we had a few volunteers. I said, you can't look. Keep your eyes closed. I'll open the bag. You just reach your hand in. You can touch it. You can feel around. You know, try to guess what it is. And so I remember, I remember specifically this one girl 
putting her hand in the bag and was like, oh. She says, is it alive? <laughs> no, it's, it's definitely not alive. And she put it in again and, oh, she was just kind of making these faces. Of course, everybody's curious now, you know, what is in the bag? And um, she took her hand out. She couldn't guess what it was. You know, she, next person went in, did the same thing. Third person did the same thing. And, and finally they said, well, it's something that's cold and kind of clammy. And, and, and yet it's kind of rough. They, they, they were making these descriptions. People couldn't figure out. So I go, anybody get Nobody could guess it. So I reached my hand in with a napkin because <laughs> I knew it was in the bag. And I pulled it out and held up this big tongue. Exactly. That's what everybody did. Oh, yuck. Oh, that's gross. You know, that. And it's, it is pretty disgusting when you just hold it up there and you look at it. And I actually, after the service, had somebody come up to me and say, hey, I'll buy that from you. That's quite a delicacy, you know. If you... I hear it's actually quite tender, but it f- seems like it would be quite chewy to me. I'm not sure, kind of tough. But the tongue is a powerful thing. I don't know who wrote it. Maybe some of you do. You know that phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never what? Isn't that the greatest untruth you've ever heard? I think I would rather get hit with a stick or a stone once than some of the words. In fact, chances are many of us here today have words that have gone deep into our hearts and into our heads ever since we were very young. And those words are still hurting to some degree. And we process those and and we're still trying to work through some of those. Words that are being said at work, in the workplace, in the offices in which we work. Some of us are maybe dreading Monday morning because I don't want to go back to what is being said about me or about others. Maybe it's home. Some of the things that are said at home that hurt and bring such deep wounds. The tongue can be such a wonderful thing and speak words of love and praise, but it can also be a very dangerous thing. I love the story that is told about a rabbi who had a student who was saying malicious things about him in the community in which they lived. The student began to feel bad for the things that he said, and so he came to the rabbi and he says, Rabbi, I owe you an apology. I've been saying horrible things about you, and I I beg your forgiveness and your pardon. The rabbi said, you are pardoned. I forgive you. But I have one thing for you to do. I have a bag, a pillow of feathers. I want you to go out to the hilltop outside of our community, and I want you to take that bag, and I want you to just release all the feathers. Student said, seems easy enough. He went out and did that, came back with a big smile on his face. He says, Rabbi, it's done. It is finished. He thought he was done. The rabbi said, very good. Now go collect all the feathers. At that, the student's face dropped. He says, well, that'll be impossible, Rabbi. And he goes, exactly. All the things that you've said about me can never be retracted, can never be all brought back, but you are forgiven. The tongue is a powerful thing. I'm in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. But the psalmist continues to go on. He says, 
Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. The burden was so heavy. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. But the psalmist continues. One of the things I love about David is that he's so real. You know, you really get who David was when he wrote. This prayer, this song that he's praying in the cave in the storm of his life, you hear the anxiousness in him. You hear the fear during the distress, but you also hear the assurance of his trust in God, in God's love, and God's faithfulness. He says, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. See the parallelism here from verse 1. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. Now in verse 7, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. You see, with God, a cave becomes a cathedral of praise. Because God's faithful love is in it with us. God's faithfulness, God's loyal love is always with us in the cave. You see, and the beautiful thing is is that the cave is never our destination. The cave is only part of the journey to where God is taking us. You see, because the heart of the song that David is singing is actually found back in verse 2 when he says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. David, while he was in anguish and while he was going through the calamity and while he was in the cave, was sure that God in his faithfulness and loyal love was working out his purpose for his life. God never leaves us alone in the cave. God never leaves us alone in the storm. In fact, when you look at scripture from beginning to end, all of those who God was drawing to himself and who was calling into ways of making a difference for his kingdom went through the calamities, went through the storms of life. Look at Joseph and what he went through. Look at Moses and what he went through. Look at David and what he went through. Look at Daniel and what he went through. I remember hearing someone once, and they said this statement, and I've always remembered this and I love it. When you think about Daniel in the lion's den, was it really Daniel in the lion's den or was it the lions in Daniel's den? Because God was with him. And ultimately, when we look at the Lord of our life, the suffering servant, the one who was familiar, Isaiah says, with grief and sorrow, he went through the storm. He went through his own cave of calamity, and yet God was bringing him through. God sends his loyal love and his faithfulness. And David is banking his song and his life on that. And 20, hindsight is always 2020. We have the benefit of looking back that God did actually, in fact, send his loyal love and his faithfulness when he sent Jesus. 
when he sent Jesus, he said, this is the truth about me. My loyal love will always be with you and I will always be faithful to you no matter what. No matter what. No matter what this world goes through. And wasn't it Jesus our Lord who said, in this world, you might have troubles. Is that what he said? In this world, you will have troubles. You will have troubles. But he didn't end it there. He says, but don't be afraid, for I have overcome the world. It seems that the people of God should never end up in caves. They should never have storms in life. But the reality is, this life is full of storms and caves. But the good news is, is that our God never leaves us alone in the cave. And that he will always bring us through the cave. I feel pretty sure that most of us here are experiencing some storms in our lives. I want to encourage you today that while it's raining and it might seem dark at times and it might not even seem like sunshine is coming around the corner, know that your Lord, the one who loves you always and who is faithful to you always is with you and will lead you through the storm. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you and I praise you that you are faithful and that your love is always loyal. And that even though we may find ourselves on someone's couch or in a cave of calamity, in a storm of life, you know what to do with storms and you will bring us through. But Lord, I also pray for the grace to remember that you're there because I know it's too easy to just focus on the storm and forget that you're not there with me. So Lord, keep us singing. Keep us remembering that you can even use a storm to work out your purpose for our life that there isn't anything in this world, the good times or the bad, that you cannot use to form yourself more fully in us. Thank you, Lord, for your presence in the cave and in the storms. Take a moment now in silent prayer to be with your Lord in prayer this morning. Now as we go, if you find yourself in a cave or in a storm, remember it's not your destination. You're just passing through. And that God's loyal love and his faithful presence is with you and will lead you through his in your life. God bless you.